and go to Mark 3. While you're turning there, if I can borrow your ears for just a moment, um, I have a quick announcement that I want to make. Um, there is a family that goes to our church. Uh, Sherry Moore is her name. His name, I forget. Stephen. Stephen and Sherry Moore. And they're really involved with a group that is called... Hold on. Don't start that recording back there yet. <laughs> it's the... National Christian Forensics and Communications Association. Now, it's not like forensics like CSI, you know, not that kind. I thought so too, and I was really excited for a minute, but no, it's not that. Um, what they do is um, they do, it's, it's, I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, they're mostly or all homeschooled kids in Southern Oregon. Um, but it's like debate and speech and apologetics and some of those kind of things. And they have a big tournament that's coming up here in April here pretty soon. Um, no, it's not. It's March 27th through the 29th. So it's next weekend. And um, they're looking for people who would like to be judges. Um, I did this last year and it was a blast. You don't have to know anything about speech. They took me. So um, you really, you ha I'm so untrained, all that stuff. Um, I do everything they get taught not to do. Um, but it didn't matter. It was just a really cool opportunity. And these kids, they, they did things like, uh, I think last year, the one that I listened to was two students arguing whether um, the United States has an obligation to help other countries in need. And listening to the two of them debate all this kind of stuff and everything. Well, apparently they're in a pinch this year and they're just dramatically low on judges and they have the event coming up. And have asked if, uh, if we could get some more people to do it this year. So if you would like to do that, um, make sure you see me after service. And I would love to hook you up with the information for that. It really was a really, it turned out to be a really fun thing to do. So uh, um, maybe some of you guys would be interested in helping. Um, so anyway, with that out of the way, let's turn to Mark chapter 3. And let's continue on if we can in our midweek study through the book of Mark with a specific look at discipleship in the book of Mark. Last week, we covered six whole verses. Um, this week, we're going to go from verse 7 through verse 21. So Mark chapter 3, verse 7 is where we're going to start tonight. And God, I just pray, Lord, that you would just bless us, Lord, by your presence, that your spirit would teach us, that, Lord, you would guide even the very words that I say, Lord, that, Lord, you would teach and instruct your people, that, Lord, not myself or heritage would get glory for any of this, Lord, but may you be glorified by the things that we look at today. Lord, may you reveal yourself to us. May we see who you are. May we see who you've called us to be. I pray, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our King and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Mark chapter 3, let's, we're going to break it into two sections. I'm going to read verses 7 through 12, and then we'll tackle verses 13 through 21. So starting out, Mark 3, 7. So Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. 
So last week we looked at the story of the man with the withered hand. We talked about the fact that crowds had been growing and that people are being attracted to Jesus Christ, um, not necessarily because they're followers of Jesus Christ, but because they're out to get what Jesus has to offer. He's healed, he's cast out demons, he's done these amazing things. And so word is spreading all over the place. And in this particular case here, we see um, as it names in verses seven and eight, the regions from which everyone was coming, we see that some people are traveling as much as 120 miles on feet to come and see Jesus and hear him teach and, and partake, they hope, in these miracles. So these massive crowds are coming to follow him. But, but the unique thing and the interesting thing is that it says here, as they begin to describe the crowds, they seem somewhat menacing in their descriptions. You know, this, uh, uh, the Sunday school or the Christian art paintings of Jesus surrounded by a bunch of gentle lambs. That's not what's described in the book of, of Mark. These people are pressing upon him um, in a full-on like stampede kind of crowd way, pressing on him to the point that they say, he's going to be crushed. We've got to do something about this. Get him on a boat. Get him away from these people. This is too much as they're pounding on him, grabbing at him. It's really chaotic the way people are coming upon him. The only people that aren't clamoring to touch him and to get close to him that we see in this description are actually the demons. I said people, but the demons we see in the scripture are actually falling down before him. Now, a couple of weeks ago, you remembered we talked a little bit about this, um, this idea of demons and, and kind of the demonic interaction between Jesus and, and these demons, this spiritual realm, um, gets a highlight or a spotlight in Mark that the other gospels don't have a whole lot of. Um, and in this particular case, we see them again, but there's something specific pointed out about what they're saying to Jesus as he comes against them that we should take a minute to just consider. Because it says that whenever the unclean spirits saw him, verse 11, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. That's a specific and uh, uh, true, yes, but very big statement that these demons are saying. Not just your Jesus, not just Messiah, you're the son of God. And what we've been trying to do as we've been going through this, this book is we're specifically looking at things that we can learn about what disciples of Jesus look like. What does it mean for us to be a disciple, to follow Jesus? How does he lead his disciples? Who should we be striving to be? And right here we see something that I think bears pointing out, though I'm not going to spend a ton of time. I really, I don't want to spend a lot of time on hypocritical Christians or any of those kinds of things. But we have to point out please understand that disciples don't just recognize Jesus for who he is, but they follow Jesus. There's a difference. I mean, the demons are here saying, you're the son of God, but this isn't repentance. This isn't following Jesus and I'm repenting and we want to follow you. That's not what's happening here. And it brings to mind the book of James that says, you believe, well, so do the demons and they shudder. So please understand, that being a disciple of Jesus, and as a disciple, we are called to be disciple makers, and we've got to be careful not to lead people to just make some statement of belief in the same way that other people make statement of beliefs with regards to, I don't know, Bigfoot. I believe that he exists. Well, good. Um, I, I believe in the Loch Ness Monster. Well, good. I believe in Jesus. Well, that's good. James says, you believe in God? That's good. Demons believe they shudder. Belief 
that disciples have, the kind of faith that saves us, leads us to live a life that's different than if we didn't believe he was there at all. Um, I don't believe in Bigfoot. I have friends that do. I want to believe in Bigfoot. I wish we had Bigfoot. I think life would be more interesting with Bigfoot. I watch the shows. I think it's great. Um, But it doesn't affect my day-to-day life. I don't get up in the morning and say, what would Bigfoot do? I'm not a follower of Bigfoot. I'm not, you know, none of those things. Now, some people are. If you've watched those shows, some are full-on disciples of Bigfoot. I, I understand that. But there's a difference between just a theoretical belief that I do believe in God and even a belief that says, I believe that Jesus is God and a, I will follow Jesus. He will be my savior. I put my faith and trust in him. It's very, two totally different things. Um, There are a lot of books that have been written out there regarding this about how even in our lifetime um, that some movements have gone to getting people to make a profession of faith but not following it up with discipleship. And so someone says the magic words at some event and then they, oh, I'm covered and then go on with life as it were before and nothing changes and we're not doing them services when we do that. We're not doing them any service whatsoever. Um, We're looking for Holy Spirit changes a person, not just, uh, oh yeah, I believe there's a God. Um, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on that tonight. I know that I just stirred a big pot possibly for some of you. For some of you, you've never considered this and you're like, what? And you're leaving me spun out. Yeah, I am tonight. Sorry. Um, love to have coffee with you and talk through some of those things. It's stuff that I even still wrestle with, with regards to evangelism and what should that look like. And, and I'm one who buys into the... Uh, When you get people to make a pronouncement, we should do that. We should invite people to come to Jesus, but then you follow that up and you walk with them so that they become disciples. We're looking for more than a, I filled out a card, therefore I'm covered kind of a thing. Um, But anyway, I want to move on from that uh, because I want to talk about something encouraging for a change. Um, Because it seems like sometimes we look at these things and it's just like, oh, I got to do that. Oh, I got to do more of that. Oh, I shouldn't do that. But tonight is something that has absolutely nothing to do with what you do or don't gotta do. Um, and and let, me, let me show you what I mean. Although there's elements, but let me show you what I mean. Let's move on into verse 13. And when he went up on the mountain, he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, eventually, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when he and his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now, the first thing, if we were to just say, what's this passage about? Um, There's two things that tend to grab the headlines, if you will. Number one, this is our defined list. Jesus calls the disciples, it names them out. Number two, the fact that Jesus' own family thought he was insane which is really interesting to think through and kind of picture that scene in your mind. All these crowds are coming and Jesus' family is like, this is so embarrassing. We've got to get him out. And literally, that's what they're doing in this story. But what I want us to consider tonight is maybe an element of this that we've never looked at before. And that is this idea of naming. It says that Jesus called to himself, verse 14, he appointed 12 who he named apostles. 
And I want to talk a little bit about what this means, about disciples, about names. Tim Keller has some things that I've read about that that have really spurned my curiosity on some of this stuff with regards to what names mean. Now, in ancient times, you guys know some of this, in ancient times, names were very, very important. Names were, um, they kind of contained a description or, or were intended to, to have some sort of idea with regards to the essence of who you are. They would tell a story about you almost. They described you. There was something about your name was who you are, not just a a four word or a word or whatever assigned to you. The name described you. It told us who you were. Your identity to some degree was wrapped up in that name. And we see this in the Old Testament. Uh, Really, I I used a passage to to this end on Sunday when we looked at Exodus 34. God says, or Moses says to God, show me your glory. And so when God shows his glory to Moses, it says in Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed what? The name of the Lord. And so then you read on through that and you see that God's uh, uh, revelation of his glory, his essence, his weightiness, who he is, is a declaration of his name. I am the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and, you know, on, on so, as so on that it goes. So this idea that your name was so much more than just a way of, uh, you know, I want to make sure that I don't call your name and he responds. So you're John and you're Tim and we'll do that. It, it was more, way much more than that. Um, today, names are different. Um, the important though, in a lot of places, um, sometimes names are given to honor family members, for example. So you might have, I'm named after my father, I'm named after my grandfather. And it's, it's important because you did it because you wanted to honor that person. Um, We also give names sometimes to reflect maybe situations or situations around our child's birth, as was the case with my daughter, Hannah. Um, We had been unable to have children for seven and a half years, and we had prayed a lot through tears, a lot, just like the biblical character, Hannah, who was begging God for a child. And so when, when our child was born, we named her Hannah for that very reason. Her name means something. It tells a story. Um, Sometimes names are even strategic. For example, I doubt very many of you realize that you've seen a movie starring Demetria Guinness. Have you guys heard of her? Demetria Guinness? Big movie star. You might know her by the name Demi Moore. Easier name to remember, Demetria Guinness. That doesn't look good on a billboard, on a poster, or any of that. Or maybe uh, you own music by Matthew Sumner. Any of you have any Matthew Sumner albums? I'm sorry, Sting. Anyone have any Sting albums at home? You might know him by that name. Some of these are fun. River and Joaquin Phoenix, you know, the late River Phoenix who passed away and his brother Joaquin. You know what their real last name is? It's Bottom. His name was River Bottom. That was his name. So yeah, not a good movie star name, right? Hippie parents, we got to fix this. Joaquin Phoenix, that's a strong name. So that's, that's what they used. Um, Isher Demsky is Kirk Douglas. It's his real name, Isher, I-S-S-U-R, Demsky. Um, Etta Kathleen Van Hemstra Hepburn Rusten is Audrey Hepburn. You know, that's a lot easier, right? I mean, imagine having to say that. Did you see the latest Etta Kathleen Van Hemstra? Uh, I, see, I can't even read it, for goodness sakes. Um, Steve Len Judkins. You want to know who that is? That's Stevie Wonder. Wonder why they changed his last name. Because it was Judkins. That's why they did that. So Stevie Wonder, much easier. Um, and then also, why do you have Marion Michael Morrison? Marion Michael Morrison, anyone know who that is? Changed his name to 
John Wayne. Because you can't have a cowboy named Marion. You, you just can't, right? The toughest guy in America's cinema history can't be named Marion. It just doesn't work that way. So they made his name John Wayne. And then one of the other ones that I found interesting, Albert Brooks, comedian and actor, his real name, honest to goodness, is Albert Einstein. So they changed his name to Albert Brooks for understandable reasons. So names are strategic. They're intended to give meaning. There's a lot of different reasons. Well, God gives names too. And God gives names differently than the way we give names. God gives names in such a way that when God names something, pay attention to this. When he names something, he creates. When God names, he creates. So think of creation. Let there be, what's the first one? Light. So he didn't go, let there be light. Now I got to go make some light. That's not what he did. Let there be, and as he spoke it, he created. Let there be, let there be. Adam didn't have that ability. He's naming animals, you know, dog, lizard, all that kind of stuff. But when God spoke them, he spoke these things into existence. There's something about him that creates Even when he speaks to Peter, your name is now Peter, which is rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Was Peter a rock? Was that descriptive of a rock? No, but it was creating. And Jesus created as the spirit came in him, as Jesus taught and led him. So there's something when God names that creates. And we see that in this passage. Because pay attention to verse 14. In verse 14, it says, and he appointed. And that's an English translation that helps us to understand, but the accurate, more accurate word to be used there, I don't know of any of the English translations that use it, but um, maybe yours does. In verse 14, it should more literally be translated to say, and he created 12. That's the word. He created 12 whom he also named apostles. So here we have Jesus naming and creating the apostles. It says in verse 16, the same thing happens again. And he created 12. So here we see Jesus is creating the apostles. This is the forming together of his formal office, if you will, apostles. And it's really significant how this happens because think of what Jesus did. He comes in here, it says, he created them, why? So that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He did not say, I'm going to go find some guys that have the ability to preach, that have the ability to go out and spread the word, and that have the authority to cast out demons. He called guys and created the apostles with this ability. He equipped them to go and do what it was he had called them to do. He didn't look for the guys that already had the qualifications. He created them, the text says. He appointed them. He brought them together and then gave them the ability to do what it was he'd called them to do. Now, this, is, this has big implications on us to consider on two different levels. Um, the first of all is this. If we understand that when Jesus speaks things, there's creation involved, that when God says something is so, is it so? It is so, right? So when we read passages of scripture that Jesus speaks, that God speaks through the scriptures about us that are descriptive of us, what does that mean? Does it mean that they might be so or that they're so? That they're so. So when Jesus, when the scriptures say things like, I'll give you beauty for ashes, what does that mean? It doesn't mean like, so get pretty. That's not what it means. It means God's going to do what he says he's doing. He's creating something in you. When it says, for example, that um, when you are weak, he will make you strong. And it does. And he does. What does that mean? It means he will make you strong. 
So there's an element to God's word that we should recapture and understand, and that is that there is a creative element to the very speech act of God, that even the promises of scripture with regards to us, we should believe in faith because God's word does not return void. So when he says he's gonna complete you, he's gonna complete you. When he says, I'm never going to leave you, he's never going to leave you. There is an authority and a creation behind it that we just can't even possibly imagine. And the second thing here is also that when he does call you, he does equip you. Because your disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, are called what? Disciples. So he doesn't go, all right, as soon as you get the ability to preach the gospel... And as soon as you get the ability to be sent out and do this and do this and do this, then come together, I will give you the tag disciples and we'll be good to go. That's not what he does with them. That's not what he does with us. God empowers us to do the work that he calls us by name to do, as we're going to see here in Ephesians in just a moment. So how does this play out then with regards? Because what I really want to do is take this idea, names are personal. And if names in ancient times were, were considered to contain some of our identity, then I want to talk a little bit about how does this play out in our identity with regards to the fact that we are disciples of Christ. And, and just hang with me on this. I want you to think this through. It's going to come together maybe. Okay. So like I said, in some cultures, your name contained your identity. And, and a lot of times would kind of convey the thing that that culture or that family felt was important to be descriptive of you. So for example, for some cultures, your identity was wrapped up in what family or what clan you were a part of, right? So they would name you John's son, Frederick's son, David's son. And the idea was, as those names were originally created, it was to say, son of David, son of John, son of Frederick. And so what they were saying is, this idea of the clan you belong to is very important in your name. And so your identity is wrapped up in the fact that you are part of this clan. In other cultures, it was what you do for a living. Uh, Smiths, bakers, things like that. There are all kinds of names that we still use today and we just take for granted as being common names, but they were intended to describe who the person was. And we still do that today. We just don't necessarily do it in the name. So for example, if I was to say, I want you to introduce yourself to someone that you don't know. And so you went to talk to them, you would say, hi, my name is Jeff. And what's the, one of the first things we all go to when we're trying to get to know someone else? What do you do? Right? It's one of the first things we do. My name is Jeff. I'm a pastor. Uh, my name is John. I work for a company, J.D. Fowler. I work, you know, my name is Tim. I teach Taekwondo. Whatever it is that you do, what we do for a living, and hey, those of you that know the gospel, Bible, students, disciples, this should resonate somehow in your mind when I say this. Our identity is almost inseparable in our culture today from what you do. They're tied together incredibly tightly. The gospel doesn't do that, but that's giving away the ending. So your identity, who are you? Well, this is what I do. But here's the thing. What happens when that part of your identity doesn't exist anymore? So for example, Michael Jordan, what's he known for? Greatest basketball player of all time. Awesome. Problem is he doesn't play basketball anymore and it's killing him. It's killing him. 
I mean, there's stories that have been written lately about the fact of how he longs for the spotlight. His enti- it's really sad because he's my childhood hero, Tar Heel guy growing up. I mean, and to see this man who had everything, he had all the titles, all the rings, all the MVPs, all the money. I mean, he invented shoe deals and he kept trying to come back and kept trying to come back and still talks about, I could come back, or if I did, I'd beat that guy, or one of the things most recently, it was him or someone else. Even today, if I came back, I'd still get 20 a game. Well, it, when your whole identity is wrapped up in, who, in what you do, and suddenly you don't get to do that anymore, then you're stuck. If your whole identity is wrapped up in money, and then you don't have money anymore, what happens? Well, think the Great Depression. People were throwing themselves out of windows because of the things that they lost. Your identity, the thing that defines you, your essence, it owns you. And when it's gone, what are you left with? There's an element of this that we see this in the scriptures because you guys know the story of the rich man and Lazarus in the scriptures. Jesus tells a story, doesn't tell it as a parable. He tells it as a real story about a man named Lazarus and a rich man who is unnamed who go into eternity. One goes into Abraham's bosom and the other is going into the lake of fire. It's a weird story from all the other stories in scripture because I don't think there's any other place that I'm aware of in scripture where one character is named and the other isn't. It's always one or the other. Either the characters have names or it's like the prodigal son where it's an unnamed son and an unnamed father and an unnamed older son. But one to have an actual specific, this was his name. And then this other guy, he's only known as what? The rich man. And the story describes him as what? He's known by nothing except the fact that he had it all. And he had all the money, but it didn't last anymore. And now his identity's gone with it. He's remembered forever as the rich guy. But when the money's gone, where does your identity stand? What do you have left at that? Well, what about you, disciples of Jesus here in this room? If your identity is a disciple of Jesus Christ, if your identity is in the fact that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and if Jesus' words mean something, that there's transformative, uh, creative power in his very words, then, I mean, here's just a couple of the things. John chapter 10 says, for example, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. I call them by name. I call them by name when they're saved. It's a specific individual. I'm calling you by name. The name is not sheep. <laughs> sheep and they all come. No, no, no. I call my sheep by name. So it's personal. It's individual. It's specific. And then Ephesians 2.10, a good verse to write down or to, to have, you know, Mark to consider later. But he says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. His workmanship. Now that's a word that sounds kind of um, uh, project driven. We're his workmanship. He, he's got Jeff and he's working on him. <laughs> that's kind of what it sounds like. That's a unfortunate translation as well because the actual word that's used there is poema which is translated in our modern terms poem it's artistic it's it, no one has workmanship and poem in the same frame of thought workmanship is like I got to roll up my sleeves and get some things done poem is like 
an artistic, beautiful expression in which the poet puts something of themselves into that. An artist puts something of themselves into something when they create it. And he says, Paul says in Ephesians, you are God's beautiful poem. That's amazing. He says, you are God's beautiful poem. We already know, called by name specifically. And he says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So, so you are God's beautiful poem, his artistic, his, his literal work of art that has been created to do a specific work that God has before you. That sounds way different than, I'm his project. Doesn't that sound different? Now, is there a sense in which I could say, I'm his project, and that's true? Yeah. There's a sense in which I'm being changed from one degree of glory to the other. But it's important that we understand this. This text is saying, you're like his work of art. Because an artist delights in their work of art. It's easy for us to look at a project as just one more thing I've got to get done on my to-do list and get finished. And and moving on forward, Revelation 2.17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give of the hidden manna. I will give to him a white stone with a what? Anybody know? A new name written upon it. That this idea that when we get to heaven, the name that we have so perfectly soiled through years of disappointments and frustrations and sin and all those things is gone. And that old essence that's tied to that old name is forever gone and a brand new name is given and it's a clean slate and all of that stuff is forgiven. That is an amazing thing to think of. That's a beautiful thing to think of. And when does that happen? It happens in heaven. So there's an understanding that, look, I'm wrestling through things now, but when I get to heaven, it's gone. It's perfect. I I don't have any of that anymore. I have a new name, and Jesus is going to personally give me that name, and it's a unique name. No one else knows the name that Jesus has for me. That's beautiful, but let's bring it back to modern times because we're disciples today. And so how does our identity, the fact that we've been called by name to be disciples of Christ, just like these apostles were, how does that play out in who we are today? What does it mean for us to live our identity as followers of Jesus Christ, as disciples of Jesus Christ today in light of what's coming? Well, there's two things in particular in this ver- specifically in verse 14 that it gives us that I want us to take note of and we'll be done. The first one is this. He says that he created the 12 whom he named apostles, why? So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Two things that I want us to notice here. And you're going, wait, that sounds like you're saying these are the things we have to do. Well, just hang with me. There's two things. The first is he has called you to be an apostle and created you, as Ephesians says, in Christ Jesus, number one, to be with him. That is a massive, massive, massive truth. We have been created to be with Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Now, notice the contrast. In the last paragraph that we were in, if you will, there's crowds clamoring to be with Jesus, crowds just climbing their way, almost stampeding him. And now it says, though he's pulled these guys apart, it even says in verse 13, went up to the mountain, called those whom he desired on the mountain, called him aside, and he named me. You're going to be my apostle. And you're going to be my apostle. 
and you're going to be my apostle. There's a, a very distinct intimacy that has been separated from the crowd, if you will. Jesus has called you, Jonathan, to be a disciple by name. And he's called you to be with him. He's called everyone in this room to be with him. Now, that's an awesome thing. We need to understand that as disciples, we need to be intentional about finding time to get away from the crowd to just be with Jesus. To just be, because I talked about it some this weekend, not even realizing this is what we're gonna be talking about this week. But for all of us, there's crowds pushing. And sometimes the crowd is physical and sometimes it's digital. And there's gotta be a time where we just go, you know what, I'm gonna shut off the phone. I'm gonna shut off the iPad. I'm gonna get away from the TV. Because man, when that thing beeps, that's like crack to us. You know what I mean? Like, that's like, it's just, it's like a, 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 what's the word? Um, Trigger. It's a, it, when, as soon as we hear that thing go beep, it's like, oh, I have to check. How many of you, honest engine time? Oh, we're not supposed to say that anymore, are we? Is that bad? I think that's bad. Okay, honest Joe time. How many, edit that. How many, how many of us have ever been like praying or reading the Bible and you hear the ding and you just instinctively, before you even realize, you just put Jesus on hold so that you can answer the other phone call. Honest, how many people? The rest are liars. <laughs> Cowardly liars. But what's our temptation with that? Oh, but they're calling and I don't want to disappoint them. I don't want to frustrate them. What if they need me? Jesus didn't have a hard time didn't really seem to have a problem with telling the crowd who wanted things from me, I need, I need, I need. I'm going on the mountain. And, and his own family thought he was crazy, but he was cool with that. And people would be looking for him, but he was okay with that because he knew that first things first, I've got to be with my father. And then the scriptures make it really clear. He has called us by name to be with him. Now, I don't think there's any of us that would actually argue me on that. And, and, and this hit me, I'm really glad we didn't talk about this last week. I'm really glad we're talking about it this week. Because here, here's what I'm, I'm really realizing in such a way that I didn't even consider before. I think all of us agree, yeah, we need to be with Jesus. I think most of us don't have a clue how to do that. I think most of us, if we were really like, what does it look like to just go be with Jesus? Uh, well, candles and... Um, probably some worship music in the background or whatever the case may be. Most of us don't really understand that. And here's, here's where I saw this. So this weekend, uh, my wife and I got together with a few couples and we took in this, this marriage seminar that we were watching. And one of the things that was being talked about in it was the idea that, um, that the husband or the father in a family is the pastor to his family. And he was talking about leading the family and praying for the family and all these kinds of things. And, and so when, the, when that session was over and we had discussion, there was 18 of us in the room together. And as we were sitting there in my living room having this discussion, we were like, okay, honest, honest. How many guys in here would say, like, right now I'm in a season where, yeah, I'm doing that, man. I'm, I'm leading the family well and I'm praying over my family and I'm praying with my family. And you're, you're in a season of consistency where that's just, like, you're just nailing it. There was one guy in the whole room that raised his hand. And so we talked about that for a second. And then I said, I'm just curious, out of everyone in the room, male or female, how many of you in this room saw your father 
leading your family like that, praying over your family and praying for your, you as a child and praying with your mom and, and just leading the family and literally being the pastor of your family and only one person raised their hand and what do you know, it was the same guy who's actually doing it now. And so we started talking about the fact, you know the honest truth is, we all believe it, we all talk about it, but most of us have never even seen it before. We don't even know what it looks like. And a lot of us are guessing. I think it looks like this. I think it looks like that. I, I don't have all the answers for all this. I tell you, men, it's coming. I'm gonna do some work on this and we're gonna spend some time on this and we're gonna deal with this and all the wives in here are gonna make you come when we do it, all right? But I got one thing I want you to consider that maybe you haven't considered before with regards to spending time with Jesus. See, I think for most of us, spending time with Jesus looks a lot more like Catholic confession. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been 12 weeks since I spent time with you. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. Now, don't get me wrong. There is an element of repentance that should be in our time with Jesus. It should be. We need to confess our sins. We need to repent. We need to do that. But, but here's the thing I don't think we consider so much. John 15, 15 says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now, I don't know about you. I don't have any friends that have gotten together with me and I'm like, hey, let's hang out. Forgive me, Jeff, for I've sinned. It's been 12 weeks since our last hangout. I don't know why I don't hang out with you more. I try. It's been, well, that's not true. I might have some, but usually it's more whiny than that. <laughs> How about this? John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. We need to understand something. Jesus created you and called you to be his followers to spend time with you because he wants to spend time with you. It's not primarily a spend time with me because you need it. It's primarily a spend time with me because I love you and I want to spend time. And for some of us, maybe some of us have had bad fatherly examples where, where we felt like a frustration to our dad all the time. Maybe to some of us, dads were overbearing Maybe to some of us, dads didn't seem to enjoy the fact that we were around, didn't take the time to delight in us. But I assure you, God is a good father. And he, know this, know this, he delights in you. And not the future you. Because that's what we think. If I could just get this thing taken care of, God will love me. God loves 2020 Jeff, not 2014 Jeff. 2014 Jeff just frustrates God just frustrates him because I'm just a project and I'm not done yet. When are you going to be done, Jeff? You're my workmanship. When are you going to be done? You know when you're going to be done? Heaven. Heaven. So why would you think that God's frustrated with you now when he promises you in scripture you won't be done till you get there? He wants you to spend time with him now because he loves you. Because he literally delights in you. He calls you his friend. He says, I just want to spend time with my friend. That is an unbelievable and beautiful truth. 
And again, there should be times in, in our time with Jesus that include repentance and forgiveness and all those things. But the scriptures say if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us. And then after that point, man, pick your head up and spend time with your friend. It says that we are adopted into his family. My wife and I, you know, we tried to do an international adoption and that whole thing was just a disaster and fell apart in Africa, but we weren't going and spending all this money and going through all this effort and traveling all that way so we could adopt someone and then just make her cower around and stay in the other room because you just bother me. It was none of that. It was we love her and we want her, what? With us. That's why we adopted her. We wanted her around. And the Bible says that you have been adopted as children of God. He wants to just spend time with you. And I know there's so much of the emphasis on you've got you to get in devotions, you've got to get into devotions. And we look at it like, all right, all right, I'm serious about this this time. And the sower went to sow. Sow, okay, what does that tell me? Sow, um, sow, sow, no, sow. Um, and we just like, we've got to break it apart and I've got to figure all this out. And God's just like, hey, 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 look, at, listen, I just want to spend some time with you. I, you know I'm, I'm into Bible study, obviously, right? And you need to read the Bible. But, but I think just as important as reading the Bible, and it's really important, sometimes just go for a walk and just talk to him. Just go for a walk with your friend. If you want to get really literal, climb a mountain. <laughs> but go, just spend time with him, not because you have to, not because you've got to prove something, or not because if I spend time with him, then he'll know I'm serious and then he'll be happy with me. No, no, no. You spend time with you, with him because he's happy with you, because he loves you, because he delights in you. Not future Jeff, right now Jeff. I love you, Jeff. Let's hang. Let's spend some time. Don't, you're not proving anything to me. I know everything. The beginning, the end. I've said I'm gonna make you perfect. I know for a fact it's gonna happen. Just spend time with me. Tim Keller said this. To be a Christian means the applause of God fame with God, acceptance by God, response and acknowledgement from God, and welcome into the very heart of God. Does that your, describe your quiet time? It doesn't mine. Mine tends to be, it's got to be serious and sober, and, and, and he delights in me. And I got, I'm a, I mean, I am a project, let's be honest. But he delights in me. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And here's why this is important. We'll be done. Because if we don't remember this, we drift right back into identity and works. That's exactly what we do. See, so Jesus calls the apostles. He gives them power to do what? To go cast out demons, to heal the sick, to go and minister. So they go and they do that, right? We know the story. Well, there's a parallel account of this in Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, all the apostles come back and Jesus is there and they come back and they report to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, you won't believe this. The demons even responded to our name. We healed the sick, we did this. And what does Jesus say? No, no. Look, I saw Satan fall from heaven. He says, yes, I gave you the authority to do this. I gave you the power to that. I gave you the ability to tread on serpents and scorpions, but do not rejoice in that. Rejoice what? in the fact that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Don't make your Christian service your identity. Don't make the stuff you have to do that which determines who you are. It's never been about that. 
You are mine, not because of you. You're mine because of me. And delight in that. Know that I love you. That all the screw-ups in the world don't matter. I chose you in spite of them. And frankly, the things that you mess up and the failures that we feel like frustrate God, that's why he came. Because he delights in you. Get that before you get number two, which is to go and serve others. Know who you are in Christ and why you are who you are in Christ before you go to number two where he sent them out to preach. Because if you don't, you'll preach the wrong message. (laughs) You'll go out and you'll preach the message that God wants to save you so no more drinking and no more smoking and no more and no more and no more. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God loves you and he wants to change you, but he wants to change you. Not he wants you to change massive difference and that's the message we have to carry if we don't have that don't preach it (laughs) that's wrong preach the truth of God that says I'm the one who will be strong through your failures I'm the one that will make up for your shortcomings I'm the one that will give you power over addiction I'm the one that will deal with your heart I'm the one who's going to do all these things and hey look when I call you I empower you so I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you And it's by faith and by the Spirit himself that I'm going to change you. That's what we're called to do. That's what a disciple is. Isn't that so much better? And don't we fall away from that super fast? (laughs) Why? Why do we do that? Because our identity is so tied up in what we do. That is not the kingdom of heaven. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in response to that, when we understand that message, we do go and carry it. Because as disciples, it's true. We are not consumers. We are deliverers. We are people who go and we minister and we serve and we reach out to others and we find ways to go and carry the good news and minister to others. We aren't people, disciples are not people who just come to church and take in and go home with some new knowledge. Disciples deliver the knowledge. Disciples find people to walk with. Because Jesus walks with them. But know who you are. You are his because he loves you and he delights in you. And I challenge you, man, in your quiet time, spend time with Jesus because that's what disciples do. But, But do it according to the identity that you really are. You are the chosen child of God. That is unbelievable. Amen? Let's stand and let me pray for you guys. C.S. Lewis said this, to be loved